education was not simply another part of American society. It was the key that opened the golden door. education, you learn how to learn. You learn. We must trust students to learn if given a chance. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where we're going to be talking about all things education, having to do with parents, students, teachers, policy, kind of whatever is happening in the news and what's relevant in the world today. This is our fourth episode, and we are focusing on school choice today. What is it and other interesting things that we have found in our research? I'm your host, Karen Greenhouse, and our co-host, Tim Pope. Say hi. Hello. How's everybody? I guess they're not going to say anything. Why do I ask that question? I don't know. No one's answering. I'll answer. Everything's good. So we are going to have a little bit of discussion about school choice. It is definitely something that is in the news often these days because of our new administration and our new Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. That is something that has become quite the topic of conversation. So I guess the first question is, what is school choice? Oh, see, and I thought that was an easy question until I started doing my prep for this. I, I was going to say the same thing because I was like, well, that's not what I thought school choice was. Uh, so what did you find out? Uh, I guess it, fundamentally it is this idea that parents should have more freedom in determining what school is the best school for their child and then have the ability to send their, their child to that, that school. So that seems basic enough. It's, well, what, what constitutes that school and how do those things get funded? It, it's a lot more complicated than I thought when I looked into it. Right. And from what I was reading, you know, school choice can be public, can be private, can be charter, can be online, can be homeschooling or any other type of learning environment. Like you can even do a combination. So school choice is just what is best for your student need. Now, who determines that? Well, and who funds it? There are different ways to fund this idea of school choice. I will say, all right, not to not to put the end before the beginning, but at the end of the day, it seems like there's a lot of talk, but little ability to do anything significant around school choice. I mean, it seems like a lot of political bluster by our current administration and what they want, but their ability to make things happen is relatively limited. But that's putting the car before the horse. Right. It seemed from my research about what the school choice funding was that Every state's making their own decisions. So even if you want to have a choice in a certain thing, your state determines whether you can or cannot. So maybe we should talk about what are the types of school choice funding. Right. So the, the first one would be vouchers, which honestly is what I sort of had in my mind when I thought about school choice, which is a relatively simple deal where you go to your state and your state or your local district or the federal government says, here's how much money we give. Um, for your child to be educated, but rather than giving it to a public school district, we're going to give it to you, and you can spend it um, from these choices of schools. And like you were just saying, depending on the state, that could be to choose between the different public schools, choose between a public school and a charter school, public charter school, online school, or a uh, private or parochial school. Right. And what I looked, what I found out about school vouchers, and, and this is my misconception, I because usually you hear school choice and voucher programs like they're two separate things when really the voucher program is a way to fund a school choice. And so I was thinking they were two separate things. So that was interesting for me. But what I found is there's 15 states. There's only 15 states that currently have a voucher program. So if you're not living in one of those states, then you can't use this idea of a voucher for funding your school. And then those 15 states do vouchers differently in terms of how many students are eligible for that, how much money is provided. Some states, it's for 
low-income and at-risk students. Some states it's for everybody. So how much money you get and how you can spend it varies amongst even those 15 states. Right. And then the other, like school vouchers and then education savings accounts, which were different, but I was trying to figure out why, how are they different? Oh, there's education savings accounts and then there's also the, there's also tax credits. Right. So education saving accounts, that's this idea. A lot of states have them already for post-secondary education, where you can put pre-tax money away to pay for your child's college education. Several states have some version of it. Um, you pay into the system, and then as long as your child goes to a public in-state university, um, you can use that money and you get a reduced tuition. That program varies. So the idea is extending that to K-12. So good as a parent, say, all right, well, I know I want my child to go to it's private school, so I'm going to have an education savings account and pay um, pre-tax into the savings account so that I can pull to pay for my child's tuition to go to whatever school. So does that mean if you donate to these funds, these non, and I think I, I, I read that there's 17 states that have this tax credit scholarship program. So if you donate to these, does that mean your student is guaranteed? Like the tuition you pay is guaranteed to get a scholarship? Like, well, there's an in-between there. You donate to the generic, um, I don't know a specific name of one, but Arizona or school choice type organization. And then that organization collects those and then offers scholarships that students and parents can use for private education. Basically, it's just an end around of the, it's, it's an end around of the church state separation. So I didn't really understand that. Like what, cause, cause I was reading the tax credit scholarships and then, then there's individual tax credits and deductions. Like they were two separate things and the scholarship is the one where you had to donate to a nonprofit. So what does that mean? So like you donate to your church which is considered a nonprofit and then you get to take that donation off that you're paying for tuition? I mean is that I guess I didn't understand that. Well, the tax credit is a different deal. The tax credit idea came because several states were sued when they went to a voucher program when the voucher program included private and parochial schools. So people sued saying that they had broken their separation of church and state, and there's a specific act that many states have in their constitution, which specifically doesn't allow state money to be used for church-based causes. And so the idea of the tax credits was this idea that, well, all right, we're not going to give you a voucher, but we can allow corporations or individuals to get tax credits for donating to these nonprofit scholarship funds, from which those funds can then be used for parents to send their kids to private and parochial schools. So you're talking about corporations? putting money towards these. So meaning there's now a larger pot of money available to parents who want a scholarship. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I live in Iowa. We have this. It doesn't, it doesn't cover the entire tuition, um, but we get we get a statement. Our, I have a, my youngest daughter goes to a Catholic school, and so we get a statement every year from the school saying, here's how much money we paid in tuition, and then when we do our state taxes, we get a certain tax credit. Honestly, to confession, my wife does the taxes, so I don't remember how much it is. <laughs> You're admitting that publicly? <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of things. She also, she also fixes the car. Wow, we're going to find out some interesting things about Tim. Ran, random dumb things about Tim. But that runs into the same problem. So those are tax credits, which means that money has to come from somewhere. It could be part of this larger tax form package that our president is promoting this fall. But then regardless of how you're doing it, to do school choice, you're going to have the, the federal government's going to have to spend more money, whether it's through offering tax credits or through paying for the scholarships or the vouchers directly. And at some point, uh, that's going to have to happen. Here, today's trivia question, what percentage of your average school district, what percentage of their funding comes from the federal government? Oh, God, I should know this, shouldn't I? It's a trivia question, and it's not the same. Is it, It's not the same for every state, though, right? Or is well, it, give or take. Give or take. I'm going to say 40%. Of 10, 
would be a generous estimate. So 10% of school funding comes from yeah. federal government. That's it. Interesting. Okay, that's smaller than that is actually smaller than I thought. <laughs> clearly, it's uh, it's a little larger in certain states, like states like, uh, um, for example, New Mexico, because the federal government gives the state an amount of money for all of the state land that's reservation land, so they can't tax it, so sure. things like that. But basically, your federal expenditures is less than ten percent. So even if Betsy DeVos could have her dream federal school choice program, you're talking about ten percent of school funding. So you're not talking about a whole lot of money to begin with. Of that money. Most of that money is through Congressional Act programs, Title I, ESSA, we talked about ESSA funding. So in order for money to be go, to go to school choice, either A, the government would have to spend more on education, that's not going to happen in the current administration, or B, they would have to take from other programs. Um, they would have to take from Title I, they'd have to take from other programs, and that would be a hornet's nest. There is one possibility that's been brokered that would be a significant amount of that 10%, which is the president in his initial budget preview talked about this idea of taking a billion dollars and putting it toward Title I portability. So that means that if I'm a parent of a child who qualifies for Title I funding, that would be from families making below the poverty level, special needs primarily those two groups. And that's done by formula. So a school district gets X number of dollars based on their demographics. So one of the things that was offered is this idea that I, as a parent, can say, well, I'm going to take my $2,500 that you're getting for my kid from Title I money, and I'm going to take that tuition pay at State Academy up the road. So those are also the students that cost the most to educate because they have the most need. They wouldn't be anywhere near a full voucher because Title I money doesn't pay all of those educational costs. And you're going to take that money out of the public school system, assuming those folks could find a school, and you're going to say, all right, you're going to have to work with these kids, and now you're going to get less money to do so. That would be the one to uh, that would have the most traction. The second one that would have traction is basically to take that scholarship program we talked about earlier, make that federal as a way to lower the corporate tax rate. Oh, sure. So if I'm Sam Walton with Walmart now, and I'm looking for a way to reduce my tax burden, I could make a donation to one of these scholarship funds. And then that money could then be used to fund scholarships for kids to go to private parochial schools, what have you. Okay, so there's what, what is that, three to four ways of funding school choice. How, if I'm a parent, and I want to have a school choice, send my kid to a private school or a parochial religious school how do i know how much money i get is it a set amount is it different by state most states it's a maximum if it's a voucher you can get a voucher for so many dollars so uh for milwaukee milwaukee's had a voucher still local voucher system that's been around for at least 20 years there's a set amount of money that if you go to a private school and the school i mean the private schools the parochial schools they're well aware of this because they're trying to recruit parents so when they're recruiting they're like all right here's our tuition cost this much of it's going to be covered by your voucher this is how much you would have to pay this your child here depending on the place sometimes the answer to that is zero sometimes the answer to that is some small amount of money. The idea is to, to mitigate that cost. I mean, those are all the different ways to do it. The amount that comes from state and local widely varies by state in terms of how your state funds schools. Um, most states, it's roughly 50-50, but then it's like in Texas, it's much more local government, very little from the state government. I'll say, I thought about this last night and I thought I would just say in the podcast, we will put links to websites because you really have to look by your, for your state, um, how the specific effects are for your students. I was trying to think of a way to summarize it in the podcast and I just couldn't come up with it. You're unfortunately just going to have to, you're just going to have to read it. Yeah, we'll, we'll provide definitely links to some of the stories. And I found a, a site where basically you can go into each state and see what each rule is on 
the funding, you know, the education savings account or the school vouchers. All, so there's, there's a lot of nice links that we'll provide. Okay, so now we know how funding can happen. So then what are our choice options? I know there's lots of them, right? So there are charter schools, schools that are funded entirely with public money. They don't charge any tuition. But those are public charter schools. Aren't there private charter schools that are different? Uh, if it's a private school, you wouldn't necessarily call it a charter school. You wouldn't call it a charter. Okay. But yeah, the term charter school is, is typically re- refers to public charter schools, which only means that those are schools that run separately from, I mean, are not they're not required to meet all of the requirements and regulations of a traditional public school. And I mean, yeah. but they receive public funding, right? Exactly. Like, so you don't have to use the uh, ESA, the um, education saving counselor vouchers because they're considered public schools. Exactly. And charter schools, they've become something they weren't originally intended to be. Charter schools were originally intended to be laboratory schools. The idea was to provide state districts the freedom to try to do some different things by having this idea of, well, you can create a charter school and you can try this different program. And if it works, then maybe you want to expand it, but we're going to give you the freedom to experiment, basically, and then determine what's going to work to make the public schools better. It has since become almost a public-private school, that's a really bad phrase. Right. That's my impression of a charter school is it's, oh, well, it's not working the public school. We're going to have this outside and independent company create a charter school that's going to be better. And now it's like a private school. Well, and because now you have, it's not the school district. So the district I live in has a charter based in the original concept of a charter school. We have a, one charter elementary school in our district. It actually uh, is run by the district. The principal there is a school district employee. But it was created because they wanted to try a more project-based learning environment. So it really was meant to be sort of a laboratory school. So it's one school and it has open enrollment and that's sort of the original idea. But now different nonprofits run charter schools, for-profit companies run charter schools. The charter idea has become this idea of a private school, but you don't have to pay to it. You use public money to pay. And that raises a question on my end here. So if a charter school is also a public school, but independently run, outside how come it does not have to follow and i know that they don't they don't have to do the testing they don't have to have the same teacher certifications in fact i've been to a couple that the teachers were actually not certified teachers so why don't they if they are technically getting public funding so it goes back to that whole idea of a laboratory. The original idea was that it was a laboratory setting, that it would allow schools to try different strategies, different paradigms for educating kids without feeling constricted by, well, I still have to take two weeks off because the state test is coming up. So the original idea was to free up this lab setting. Now, the problem becomes, um, and I think your point is great, which is now that charter schools by and large aren't labs anymore, they become private schools funded with public money. How do we hold those schools accountable? And this again, varies by state. Some states have charter schools, but charter schools still have to do testing and still have to be held accountable. Other states require nothing. The state of Florida, which has far the largest state-funded school choice program, also has pretty strict requirements in terms of accountability. And this is where, when you get to the politics of it, when you say school choice, it's not really an easy question, are you pro or against school choice? I mean, believe it or not, our previous President Obama and our current President Trump would both agree that they both promote school choice. Our current administration, at least from what they have said publicly, Betsy DeVos and President Trump have recommended this idea of little accountability. Schools should have the freedom and parents should be able to make the best choice based on what's best for their child. And we should remove the shackles of any any sort of testing or any other regulation. I mean, like you were saying before, the certified teacher, quality of facility, the parents can choose whatever is best for their kids. Yeah, I mean, it begs the question, why, as educators, do we need to then therefore go to all of this schooling that we do to get better at our profession and to be experts in our field if 
someone can say, well, I'm going to go here where they don't necessarily need qualified teachers. <laughs> Name another profession in which we just tell lay people, yeah, pick whatever's best. A good friend of mine's a doctor, and she said the worst thing that's happened to the medical profession is WebMD. And now the lay people, they go on the internet, they read a couple of things, and then they come into the doctor. I have this disease. <laughs> And they have this disease. She said, well, the only thing worse than whether is pharmaceutical commercials, because now you have lay people who now all of a sudden believe that they, they know what's, what's best in terms of, of, uh, in terms of medicine and diagnosis and prognosis. And I'm not, I'm not saying parents are ignorant, um, or not capable of understanding it. It's a matter of time. I mean, I am a professional educator and it scares me when I realize how much trust I put in my kids' schools to do the right thing because sure. I just don't have time in the day to keep track of it all. Um, like I said, to hold too many kids. So I mean, <laughs> I, I take schools. We have relationships with school leadership. We have, we have something of a relationship with a teacher, but especially when our kids get to middle school and high school, I, I couldn't even tell you all my kids' teachers' games last year. Oh, sure. Um, so it's not so much parents shouldn't be allowed to make a choice because they're not capable. How much choice, given their ability? I think the concept is, well, if we have more charter schools and more school choice, private parochial schools. Well, then there will be competition and schools will be all become better because they're going to want to compete to keep students enrolled. Right. I did read that in the, that there is some research that shows initially, if a charter school opens in a area, that the local public school actually kind of steps up to, uh, steps up its game because there is competition. So initially there is that, oh, we need to be doing more so we can compete, but then that goes away is what they said. So here's my take is that I don't think it's going to promote competition among schools in terms of improving instruction. It's going to increase schools' ability to do sales and marketing as someone who is in business. So if we had someone on this podcast from a group like EdChoice with Local Choice, they would give us a litany of studies that have been done to show that charter schools are superior. Conversely, if we had someone here from the National Education Association, they'd give us an equal litany of research say that no problems are better. Right. The reality is there is no conclusive evidence one way or the other that in terms of projecting big picture. Now, if you're a parent, maybe there is an environment that is better for your students or another student. I know we have, I have too many kids. And <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment. We just leave it there. Uh, we have our youngest one, we have go to a, is going to a parochial school now. I mean, that was a decision because we thought that was the best environment for her, specifically because in the town we live in, the only school that had a uh, dual language program was one of our local Catholic schools. And that's something we really valued for our daughter. And so we sent her there. So in terms of your individual student, there may be one choice that's better than another. But if you holistically look at the data, there is no substantive data one way or the other. But I mean, I think that is also another perception about charter schools versus public schools. They, they have smaller classrooms. They have more individual attention. And I guess that's marketing. Right. They promote, they, they promote those assets. Like these are the things this charter school can offer. So let's go back to the story of my daughter when we, when we were getting ready to move here five years ago. My wife came a couple months before we were moving here. She went uh, and made an appointment to visit the public school and an appointment to make the Catholic school to see the school so we could figure out where we wanted to send our daughter. She goes to the public school. She calls me later. She got there. They were swamped. It was right before the end of the school year. Everyone was all over the place. Finally, one of the school secretaries was able to sit down with her for a few minutes, and she gave her the paperwork for how to register and a brochure about the different classes. Day two, she goes to the Catholic school. She's greeted by the principal. She's given a guided tour by a person who's met tour many times before. Is the Catholic youth sales and marketing? I mean, our Catholic schools—they have billboards around town. <laughs> so that has nothing to do with the quality of education. Charter schools don't talk about what do you have to support students with special needs? What do you have to promote school safety? All these things that public traditional public schools have to deal right. with. Because public schools. You know, they're public schools and they tend to have larger classrooms because they have to teach the students that are there with the teachers that they have.
and they don't have a choice. So it's not a fair competition. I mean, unless you're going to go with some sort of school choice funding program that then requires anyone who takes that money has to open their doors to all students. It's not an apples to apples comparison, in which case you're going to have traditional public schools that are going to fight to do the best they can with the students who either have parents who aren't able or willing to deal with how to get funding and get my kid into a charter school or a private school or students of special needs kids um, who have no other option because no for-profit charter school and they look at the price tag for what it costs to to educate a special needs student wants to even deal with that. I'm, I'm all for, I I actually am very much for school, school choice, but I uh, you're pointing out mona, many of my own um, issues with it is the fact that it's not really a choice for everyone. And so for it to be fair, it should be for everyone, but in realistic terms, it is not a choice for everyone. So therefore, students who are typically left behind, you know, our low income, our students with disabilities are still going to be left behind because they don't have the choice to actually get into those charter schools. And the problem with this, everyone thinks a charter school, I mean, I'm just thinking of perceptions of teachers and parents around the area, they think that they're better because they're charter schools. But just because you have a charter school doesn't mean your student's going to get into them. From what I was reading, there's tends to be limited enrollment. And so there's always this lottery. And so people who are trying to get into these charter schools end up not being able to get into charter schools. You raise a point about parents. Yes, there's this perception that charter schools are superior. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But in doing the research around the effectiveness of the schools, there is one area in which there's conclusive evidence that charter schools are superior to traditional public schools. And it's in parental satisfaction right. with the school. Right. Yeah, it's definitely not because what I read from the research, and I'm sure you read the same research, charters and private schools actually have the same kind of achievement or lower than a public school. So it's not like you're getting a better education because you're in a charter school. And then we have magnet schools, which for me were very similar to the idea maybe of what you were talking about before, why a charter school was even developed. But a magnet school is also a public school with a specialty, you know, like a technology magnet school. The difference there is a magnet school still has to follow all of the procedures and requirements of a traditional public school. Whatever testing requirements, staffing requirements, teacher licensing requirements, they operate governmentally just as a traditional public school. But they have a specific mission, whether it's usually around a career interest or around like a gifted and talented. And as a result, magnet schools are allowed to have some sort of an application from large urban areas like Chicago and New York City. A lot of them will have uh, magnet schools, uh, magnet math and science schools that serve the uh, creme de la creme in the public schools. But they're totally a public school. And unlike a charter school, they still have to meet all the traditional public school requirements. Okay, so there's two different types of school choices, the charter schools and magnet schools. We talked a little bit about the magnet schools. But there's other choices parents can make. There's the, I don't know if you read this, the inter and the intra-district public school choice. So basically, you are assigned to school when you live in a certain zip code. You're assigned the elementary, the high school, whatever. But you can choose to go to another school within your district. That's another option for school choice. But that also does not require any funding from the vouchers or the ESAs. And that's an interesting concept. And again, how that's implemented varies widely. I mean, typically the way that works is it's if there's opening. So like if you live, if you live in a, a, uh, an urban school district and you know, right outside of town, um, like I'm thinking Dallas and Highland Park. If you don't, those of you who don't know your Texas geography, Highland Park is where George W. Bush lives. And it's this, this very well to do enclave that's totally surrounded by the city of Dallas. So you might think, well, Highland Park schools are phenomenal. And I want to send my kids to Highland Park. And they don't have to go get your student 
if you do decide, if you do get in, you have to take your child there, right? And that's my understanding. Typically, the way it works is they only have to accept students if there's room. So there has to be room and you have to get your child there. Um, Typically is the way it works. Now, there are school districts who, uh, if they have, if you have declining enrollment, they would actively seek to recruit. I know my sister lives in a district right outside of Lansing, Michigan, with all the traditional challenges of an urban school district. And she lives in this little town outside there and they were running into a budget crunch and needed revenue. So their revenue was recruiting students because the state gives them money per student. It's back to that marketing that we were talking about before. Sales and marketing. There you go. So we've got charter school, magnet schools, changing within the same districts, inner or intra-district schools. And then online learning is also a choice, which from my reading would allow you, if you choose to have your kids in an online learning environment, for some of their classes, all of their classes, you can use the vouchers and the ESA savings and tax credits. Uh, Online learning, yes, that is an option. A lot of states have some sort of state run. Yeah, like what Florida has, what, Florida Virtual School. So I think that's a huge program. The Florida. Florida Virtual School. Here in Iowa, they have one. I know my, my daughter took classes through it because she wanted to graduate a year early. So she took summer school classes through the Iowa Virtual School. So she was never a full-time student in that program, but she did take classes. So that exists. Uh, that would be a whole other podcast. And then the last one I read was homeschooling. And I don't know if you have another one, but homeschooling. If you decide to homeschool your kids, are you allowed to take money from vouchers that would have been spent in a public, you know, option and you're going to use it for homeschooling. My thoughts were no. There are no programs that I know of where someone can homeschool their child and then go to the state or local school district and say, all right, I'm educating my own child to give me $4,500 or whatever. Right. I mean, I guess you could do the tax credit. I think I would imagine the tax credit probably maybe comes into play. I, and I don't know if that would be, I mean, theoretically, that I don't think anybody does that either. But theoretically, there could be a, a way that, uh, yeah, there's some sort of tax credit program where you could say, and this is the tax credit like we have here in Iowa, this idea of you uh, you pay, like I pay so much for my daughter's tuition and I get a credit for that. I mean, I guess there's a way you could say, well, if you're homeschooling, you could get a tax credit to do whatever. Right. So my, uh, my brother and his wife homeschool all seven of their children. They beat you, Tim, on the number of children. And uh, they actually do what's, uh, I guess it's a new thing with homeschooling. They have a homeschool, I want to call it a consortium, where there's a whole bunch of parents that homeschool. So they all get together a couple days a week, and the parents split up. So one parent might teach algebra to many of the students that are homeschooled. So like they kind of create their own school, in a sense, where they're sharing responsibilities for homeschooling. Yeah, I've seen that. I know uh, we, for lots of reasons, we uh, homeschooled one of our daughters for a year and they had a deal where at the Y twice a week, the homeschool parents all got together and did PE at the Y. Right, right. So there's a lot of those things. But that's definitely out of your own pocket. So that's a choice that usually is being funded out of your own pocket. So parents actually have choices now. So school choice is not something new. It's there. Every state varies. You need to know what you um, have in your school. There's places you can go. We'll provide some links. But not all of the school choices require federal funding or options for federal funding. And But you can't always get into a school choice. So school choice, while it's this great idea... It's limited by enrollment. It's limited by what it offers. You know, if you have a special needs student, uh, charter schools probably 
may not be a best choice because they don't have things for your student, those types of things. So even though we have choices, it's like we're limited, really. You don't really have a choice. They don't. And I mean, there are, there are some places in the country that have pretty extensive voucher programs, D.C., Milwaukee, Ohio, that uh, you can come close to being able to send your child to a private school at no additional cost. But by and large, most of the options out there do cost something. I mean, even if you're homeschooling, then that means you need to have a parent available, not work to stay home and educate your child. So, I mean, I guess sort of to, to wrap this up, I mean, we'll post the link. Step number one, if this is an issue, is know what the, know what the deal is and is not in your own state um, or even your own district. Um, know that when you listen to the president and the secretary of education speak, they're only talking about somewhere between eight and eight between, and that's generous. I've seen anywhere between eight and 10% um, of the uh, of the revenue that you're talking about getting your hands on to help fund education coming from the federal government. So you really need to know what's going on locally. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to know what the options are, regardless of what the funding available is, know what's best for your students. And know your schools, like know, go investigate the schools in your That's what school we should district. do another episode on, is how to, how to find out how, if your school is actually any good. Yeah, because test scores, as I have learned, are not necessarily the the best indicator of how a school is actually doing. In my opinion. yeah, you really have you have to walk the halls. Um, yeah, exactly, and or sit in classrooms and see what's actually happening. And so then, you know, this if, if school funding were to grow, that could be the. I mean, we talk about sales and marketing. That could be the benefit to a public school. It's like mostly if you were a parent and you show up at the school and say, I'd like to spend a day observing teachers and observing life at your school, most schools will flip out. And I bet some schools would say not even possible. <laughs> I, I'm thinking secondary elementary school, that might be more, they might be more accommodating. But I could just imagine some of the high schools I taught out of a parent showed up and said, well, I, I want to show up. I want to go to classes with my kid and see what it's like. Yeah, it would, it would, it would cause some, some uh, controversy. But it is very eye opening. You know, I mean, you're a parent of many children, and as a parent and a teacher, when, uh, and I'm speaking from my own children, but when they would come home with, like, math or what was happening in in a certain class, I'd be like, are you kidding me? That's what that teacher's doing. I need to go sit and talk to that teacher, you know. So you you don't get to really know what's going on until your kids are in the school or you go and see the school and sit there. You might might want a helmet and pads if you're going to go into a middle school cafeteria. (laughs) (laughs) Not highly recommended. Personally, I don't know. I guess the conclusion is you have choices now. It's not something new. Go explore and investigate the choices that you have and explore the schools in your own uh, area just to see what's really happening. And on that note, I think it's a fine way to end. Thank you for listening to another episode of 180 Days. Standard podcast chat. Um, Please go iTunes, comments. Like I said, this is episode number four. There's lots of room for improvement. We'll only improve if we get feedback. But you can make comments, positive or negative, but only rate us if you're going to give us five stars. Is that, is that yeah, one? we're going to be selective about that. I mean, constructive criticism as long as at the end of the day you give us a glowing, uh, glowing number stars. Glowing stars. Lots of stars. That's what we need. Well, thank you, Madam Greenhouse. It was a privilege as always. Thank you, Mr. Pope. And goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook with the handle at 180 Days Podcast, where we continue the conversation, post links to articles for each episode, and send out updates and announcements. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.